Welcome to another episode of Governance in Africa Conversations. My name is Rob Tell Paley, and you are listening to the series Governance in Africa Conversations from the Center of African Studies at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. This program is part of the Governance for Development in Africa initiative funded by the Mo Ibrahim Foundation. The initiative aims to enable Africans to improve the quality of governance in their countries by supporting them to develop skills and talents within an expert academic environment. The purpose is to study both the legal aspects of governance and the relationship between governance and economic development. In today's program, we have in studio Silas Siakor, founder and lead campaigner of the Sustainable Development Institute in Liberia. Silas, welcome to SOAS, and thank you for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Now, Silas, your organization, SDI, Sustainable Development Institute, is celebrating its 10-year anniversary in 2014. Now, can you begin by telling us how the Sustainable Development Institute came to be and what is its mandate? Well, the Sustainable Development Institute was founded back in 2002, um, but actually got accreditation from the government of Liberia in 2004. And when we set out, our mandate uh, was to find ways to improve the way decisions are made around natural resources um, in order to transform the way we've done business in the past. Basically, trying to find ways in which we can engender more citizen engagement with how natural resources are managed and how decisions around those resources are made and how benefits are shared. Uh, because that has been one of the biggest problems in uh, Liberia's history. Uh, and in a lot of ways, contributed, serve as a contributing factor to the conflict that we had uh, that just ended in 2005. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about how natural resources um, fueled the conflict in Liberia. If you look back to uh, the founding of the state, um, the way the government was uh, set up, the way uh, the different arms of the government has been uh, uh, has evolved over the last uh, couple of, of uh, decades, you will begin to realize that the decision-making power has been concentrated in the hands of the elites, mostly at the national level, uh, with absolutely no participation from people at the local level. Mm totally disregarding the fact that these are the people on whose lives resource extraction has the most impact. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when we uh, look at the situation and begin to consider what are the options, what are the different avenues through which we could transform that situation, through which we could uh, encourage a new way of thinking about how we make decisions about our resources, that was the idea behind the formation of the Sustainable Development Institute. And some of the ways in which the natural resource sector contributed to the conflict uh, going back to 1990 right up to 2003, if you look at the timber sector, for mm -hmm. example, the different logging companies that operated in the country during this period, all of them in different ways contributed to the war, either through providing logistical support to different factions, uh, some of the revenue that was being paid to the government at the time was being used directly to finance different militias, 
Um, even before the elections in 1997, timber companies were operating in areas that were controlled by the National mm-hmm. Petroleum Fund of Liberia. And timber from those areas were being exported, and the revenue was going to Charles Taylor uh, and his rebel movement. Okay. Now, how is natural resources governance related to other governance issues in Africa more broadly? If you consider the fact that uh, natural resources, the extraction and trade of natural resources make up a major, a significant Mm -hmm. part of economic activities on the continent, then you will begin to realize uh, the link between how decisions are made about those resources and the broader governance agenda for the different countries. Mm -hmm. One of the things you will find across the continent, which is, um, I should say, not particularly uh, encouraging is that our governments are being very poor at how they manage, how they govern mm. the resources that's so abundant across the continent. Now, uh, what I say to people often is that the bad governance we see in the natural resource sector cannot be looked at on its own. It should be considered in the broader context of governance on the continent. Sure. And oftentimes, the countries where you see poor governance of natural resources on the other hand, you see very poor political governance. Where you've seen improvements in governance of the political system, you also see improvements in natural resource governance. And uh, Botswana, for example, is a, is a shining example, where as a result of improvements in, politi- in the way the politics is uh, carried out, in the way the government conducts business, we have seen that translated into better policies and better management of the natural resources to the extent that the citizens are actually uh, seeing a lot of benefits from the natural resources. Sure. That is lacking in Nigeria, in Liberia, mm-hmm. in Equatorial Guinea, all the other countries where governance is poor. Sure. I think it was Paul Collier, maybe another um, development economist, who argued that when you find um, elite bargains, so the political elites in sort of cahoots with the multinationals um, to control oil wealth or you know mm-hmm. iron ore wealth or whatever, you'll find that there's a lack of engagement with local citizens because they don't necessarily have to rely on the citizens to make these decisions because mm-hmm. they're relying on oil wealth or mining wealth or whatever. I mean, do you, do you find that to be a strong case? That is one of the uh, challenges that we face on the continent okay. because either our governments are relying on natural resource rent or they are relying on donor support. Mm. None of the very limited amount of the money they need to run the budget comes from the citizens. So you have a situation where the sense of accountability to the citizens Mm -hmm. is very low because they don't depend on the citizens for the revenue they have to uh, generate. But But they have the political mandate from the citizens. They've got the political mandate, which is a a very sad situation because... On the one hand, what I'm seeing across uh, many of the countries that I've visited in Africa, citizens are clamoring, are advocating uh, to have a greater say because mm-hmm. I think there is a realization sweeping across the continent that unless citizens are actively engaged in the politics of their country, a lot of the problems, mm-hmm. a lot of the challenges we see uh, in Africa will remain. Therefore, if the only way we can translate the current uh, uh, relationship between the state and the people uh, to allow for more citizen engagement is to maybe find innovative ways 
to encourage citizen participation mm. so that the government does not simply cut them out of the decision-making processes. That could really change uh, the situation. It could turn the continent around. Sure. Talk about innovative ways. SDI has some interesting ways in which they navigate multiple spaces. So at the, you know, at the local level, at the national level, and at the international level. Can you talk about some of the innovations that SDI has come up with in the past 10 years to make um, local citizens a bit more involved in the process of natural resources governance? What I have, I have seen over the last uh, decade, um, and I think, I don't, I don't think it is just the Sustainable Development Institute SDI okay. that has kind of come to this realization. I believe our politicians are fully aware mm. um, because in every town hall meeting that I attend across the country, citizens ask and demand one thing. They want to have a say in how the budget decisions are made, in how the uh, development projects are designed and implemented, in uh, how the government manages its internal working to ensure that there is a greater degree of accountability mm. um, to the citizens. And all of that is happening right within the public space. All of that discussion is happening in a space where the government the private sector, the citizens themselves are engaged. Mm-hmm. So I don't think the government is unaware. Okay. I don't think this is quite uh, the type of groundbreaking uh, innovations that I would like to see. However, I can uh, say very clearly that what we're seeing is that just by encouraging citizens to engage in the different uh, discussions that are taking place, be it around natural resources or elections or around peace and reconciliation, we have seen that they've got very, very interesting viewpoints on all of these issues. Mm-hmm. In the past, that did not happen. So what we have uh, begun to do is to encourage more and more citizen participation, pushing for space both at the national level and the local level, and in some instances creating our own spaces at the local level and bringing citizens together, bringing government officials together, bringing in the private sector, and creating the opportunity for all of us to have a conversation. That is really changing the relationship between the state and the population. And I think we need to have more of that. Okay. Now, in terms of Liberia, I mean, 10 years has passed. Um, We're celebrating 10 years of peace in Liberia. Um, I'm curious to know if you can talk a little bit about some of the achievements that have been, that have sort of arisen out of advocacy, not only with the SDI, but with other local partners in terms of changing the game of natural resources governance in Liberia ch- achievements? Because you want to celebrate what we've been able to oh, achieve, Oh, yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. Um, if you look back, say, just uh, 11 years ago, mm-hmm. just to go beyond the 10-year mark, um, there was no provision in the law, any of the, the policies encouraging or allowing for citizen participation, never mind the Constitution mm-hmm. mandates that. The state has never, ever uh, kind of fulfilled that constitutional mandate, ensuring the maximum feasible participation of the citizens. Just uh, in the last couple of years now, what we've got is a whole range of different legislatures and policies that now make it mandatory for the government to involve citizens at different levels of Mm. decision-making. In the forestry sector, we're seeing a very clear uh, set of guidelines in terms of uh, different regulations um, providing for or compelling or obliging the state to ensure that every single regulation that's developed, every piece of of, uh, uh, decisions that are made about forestry resources 
the citizens must be involved. Mm. To the extent that the Forestry Development Authority or the government can no longer develop new regulations for mm. the sector without having a conversation with the citizens, at least to the extent of developing uh, regulations, putting out the draft uh, for a minimum of 60 days before Mm. They can be able to formulate that into standing regulations. Now, that is a major, major shift from what we saw in okay. the past. If you look at, uh, for example, the land sector, um, the government has now formalized customary land rights and giving it the same protection as uh, private uh, mm. land ownership. Again, very major shift from the way we did business before to a very new kind of arrangement. So very new relationships. And right now, the government uh, acknowledges, at least which is something that's embedded in international principles, that no development can happen on customary land, community land, without their informed consent. Mm. So the government is under obligation to seek active engagement from citizens to uh, obtain permission from them in order to allow for development on their land. That is a major shift. The challenge we face, I was however... I ask you about the challenges. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of um, interesting uh, or very difficult to talk about these achievements because one has to put them in context. Um, on the one hand, while we've made all of these changes in how uh, the state and the people interact, on the other hand, the state is not respecting what mm. it has, uh, the rights it has given to the citizens. For example, even though the government will say um, no development on community land without their consent, the government turns around and gives the very same land to a multinational without any conversation with the communities. Mm. So a major contradiction. Do you think it's about window dressing, about pe- appeasing people? I, I think 165 years of doing business one way, mm. you're not going to break away from that uh, in three to four or sure. five years. It will take us a while. Um, first of all, we need to change. Um, we've got a particular group of people in government that have got a particular way of thinking. That group has to go. That generation has to move out and Mm. a new generation come in. Um, In addition to that, we have encouraged changes in law without encouraging the same type of changes in the institutional thinking around those changes that we are putting in the law. For example, we've got a situation where the Forestry Development Authority or the uh, Ministry of Internal Affairs has an obligation to sit with citizens to have a conversation. Now, you can only do that if you've got the capacity Mm. to facilitate an even discussion between people at the grassroots level and politicians, uh, or at least from the capital. To ensure that there is a balance in that conversation, you need to have a particular set of skills to be able to facilitate such a discussion. Unfortunately, we've got the same people who did... Uh, uh, who excluded everyone else a decade ago, they are still in position. Mm. We haven't changed the people uh, to bring in the type of skill sets that we need to make uh, the changes that we would like to see in practice. Therefore, you have a situation where technicians without absolutely any kind of understanding of what it means to uh, encourage equal uh, 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 negotiation or discussion between politicians and communities and the civil society and the private sector having to manage those processes. So I can understand why it will take us a while before we can get there. Sure. How do you groom a new breed of leaders? Because, I mean, there seems to be a crisis of leadership not only in Liberia or on the continent, but mm. all over the world. So how do you get this new 
um, cadre of leaders who will do things differently in, in, in the future? First of all, I think there needs to be a realization uh, from this generation, the current generation, that we need some kind of change, some kind of transformation. Um, based on that uh, realization, then we all can figure out how best to proceed. Okay. Uh, but I think at this point in time, in the interim, while we wait for the long-term uh, uh, change to, to come about, what we could do is to begin to, to rethink the way we did business before. Mm -hmm. uh, and to, uh, I think, get ourselves to a point as a society to accept that things need to change. What we had uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, when the rest of our countries, Liberia, for example, uh, were cut off from the political capital, um, we could easily make the excuse that uh, the infrastructure was not there mm -hmm. in order to facilitate people engaging with government to have a conversation about what was happening in their societies. Now that challenge is no longer there. True. It is possible to have conversations across our countries from the capital right to the most remote parts of these uh, different countries with ease. We need to take advantage of that. Um, and also, I think we need to begin to reconsider the way or reconfigure the way uh, we have set up our systems of government. Mm. Um, for example, in the case of uh, Liberia, we've had a situation where the president is all-powerful, the president appoints more than 80% of the people that serve in government. Now, you're not going to have any kind of accountability at the local level if the officials at the local level are appointed by the president who sits in the cabinet. Is that unique to Liberia on the continent? I, or? I think in a lot of ways, the political systems are very similar. Okay. There may be some differences between countries, but a lot of the, uh, the features are very much the same, mm -hmm. where the president is all-powerful. Um, and a lot of decision-making are centered around the president. And mm. as a result, if you are on good terms with the president, there is very little incentive to be accountable to the mm. other people around you. And that is common across the continent. I don't only think it is related to Liberia. Okay. Often in this discussion about natural resources, Governor, we, we talk about, you know, the state citizen relationship. I mean, what is the role of the private sector in all of this? Because they they obviously, um, mm. multinationals, yeah. engage in, in horrible governance practices just mm. as much as the governments do. So how do you change their behavior, force them to realize that they have a stake in all of this as well? There are a couple of things that are happening uh, on the continent. And I think if we look at those very carefully, mm. we could... Um, kind of uh, pull out some lessons in terms of how we could change the way private sector conducts itself okay. uh, on the continent. So what's happening that you think is... is For example, um, again, uh, I, I talk about West Africa uh, oftentimes mm -hmm. on, on these issues. Communities that are affected by resource extraction are actively stepping out, challenging the rights of the private sector mm -hmm. to operate in their communities challenging the right and the authority of the state to allocate uh, extraction rights to those multinationals. That did not happen before. That's mm. happening now. And that is forcing the private sector to, to take a step back and say, well, we think we need to have a conversation. Sure. For example, in uh, Liberia, we, ha we now have situations where communities 
uh, are saying to mining companies, you cannot take out any of the iron ore until we've had a conversation about how that is going to benefit our mm. community. Uh, communities are saying to oil palm companies, we cannot allow you to cultivate any more of our land until we've had a conversation. Mm. That did not happen. That is forcing private sector into a situation where they need to have a conversation. And they are uh, sitting down now and having a conversation with different communities. Sure. What needs to happen, however, to take that to another level is for the governments to realize that in this particular situation, they need to stand with their citizens. Sure. To the contrary, in the case of Liberia, the government stands for the private sector. Mm. So you've got the two most powerful actors, on the one hand, the government and the private sector, versus the citizens and civil society, NGOs like ours, on the other hand. So a very uh, uh, a case of imbalance of power mm-hmm. uh, relations, if you like, and that needs to change. Um, but I think beyond the national level or the local level, what needs to happen also is that there is, I think, a global realization mm. that private sector need to do business differently in Africa if Africa is to turn the corner, uh, to move towards a much more uh, prosperous future. Sure. Um, and one of the things that I often hear uh, from different actors at the international level is that maybe it is time for us to address some of the, the broader, the global dimension of mm. the corruption we see in the resource sector. Mm. The way multinationals conduct themselves, hiding behind shell companies, for example, mm-hmm. negotiating uh, very unfair uh, resource extraction agreements with different countries uh, on the continent, um, siphoning of the profits uh, to their home countries, sure. uh, transfer pricing, a very common feature where uh, they kind of rape the country because they, they transfer the uh, the actual production cost, they, they keep that in country, mm-hmm. and the profits are transferred to the external uh, subsidiaries. Therefore, through that, the state can only tax them on very minimal income that they can declare in country and sure. not the ones that they declare on the outside. All of those... Uh, but what about uh, value addition? I mean, that's the other thing is this extraction regime is about taking out and not really adding benefits to... If, if African governments... Uh, kind of came to the realization, and they have to do that very soon, that reliance on raw material Mm. export will not develop Africa, then we would have made a major, major progress. Because at the moment, what we see is that there is this over-reliance on iron ore Mm. in its primary form, on timber as uh, round logs, not uh, uh, tables or, or, or manufactured products, and a whole range of other commodities that are taken out in very primary uh, stage. No valid addition on the continent. If you look at Liberia, Firestone has been there since mm-hmm. 1926. We don't produce a single, a single uh, plastic material mm. in country, not even a polythene bag. That has to change. And our government needs to realize that unless we move into uh, adding value to our commodities, to our resources in on the continent, the rent that we get from these uh, raw commodities will not develop the countries. Sure. Now, Silas, you won the Goldman Environmental Prize in 2006, which is the world's largest prize honoring grassroots environmentalists. How has this international recognition helped your work? You're so it, modest, <laughs> but please, toot your own it, horn. It, it, is, <laughs> it is a bit of a, a double-edged uh, mm. sword, if you like. Uh, on a positive note, it has really helped to kind of uh, create the type of profile um, that one needs in order uh, to be able to 
forcefully deliver the message that we've got to deliver. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, challenging our governments to do better, mm -hmm. challenging our governments to think differently. Um, so the media attention that is generated by all of this uh, can be really, really useful, can be a very powerful way of getting our voices out uh, to levels that we would never have access before. Sure. On the other hand, um, you then kind of stand out. Uh, you, you feel very exposed mm. because then everybody knows your name. Um, the politicians are very aware um, that you've got years uh, of uh, people on the outside, mm -hmm. and uh, they tend to be very nervous of your activities, mm -hmm. and uh, it draws a lot of attention to you, and that can be a bit of a challenge because then you have to begin to act like a politician. Mm. You've got to uh, have a conversation in ways that... Um, they feel comfortable to listen mm. to your suggestions, but at the same time, doing that without compromising your value. Sure. That can be a very tricky balance. How have you, how have you reconciled that? I suppose um, being my father's son, my mother's son, um, has contributed to uh, the way I would say we have been successful about this. Mm -hmm. So, and, and by that, I mean being able uh, to call a spade a spade when I have to. Mm -hmm. Um, there are times that I feel just challenging the powers that be, just standing up to them and questioning them. I kind of put my neck out a little bit too far. Mm. Um, but at the same time, um, I turn around and say to them very respectfully that this is not about you. This mm. is about the system. The system needs to change. Mm. Um, and I think maintaining uh, that balance has been very helpful. But sure. nevertheless, it is a very challenging thing to do. True, I would imagine, because... Um I mean, I know you personally, Silas, and <laughs> you and SDI have been labeled troublemakers. But I think when, when they call you troublemaker in Liberia, it actually means a good thing, that you're actually raising these issues and making sure that people um, people's voices are heard. Yeah. So that, that label troublemaker doesn't, I'm sure, doesn't concern you at all. No, that's, that's actually the least of my concern. Okay. Um, what really concerns me is uh, the fact that you've got to interact uh, with everybody, mm -hmm. including those you have to very publicly criticize. Sure. You have to sit down with them, have a conversation, and sometimes have a beer uh, afterwards. Mm. That can be very challenging. That is the most troubling part of my relationship with the political system. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, having a small population has been very helpful mm -hmm. because uh, as a result, you kind of are able to bring back um, what we sometimes uh, refer to as a family connection sure. into the conversation to kind of uh, lower the temperature when you've had a mm. situation where your criticism has been taken very personally by some individuals, then you find a very uh, neutral or maybe less uh, tension-filled uh, way of kind of engaging with them again and having sure. a conversation along the family lines. Okay. So uh, keeping the two together has worked. Great. Now let's let's talk about looking forward. Um, your vision for SDI. You're celebrating 10 years. Vision for SDI, Sustainable Development Institute, and Natural Resources Governance in Liberia generally. Next 10 years, what would you like to see happen? The first line of a uh, kind of uh, um, things I would like to see in the Sustainable Development Institute has to do more with the institution itself. Okay. Um, I would like to see a much more democratic a much more uh, inclusive uh, SDI, um, one that is, I would say, 100% membership-based mm. and membership-driven, not an organization, an NGO 
that is uh, uh, driven by two, three, four individuals, sure. but a broad-based membership where anyone, any Liberian citizen that has an interest in how development is uh, uh, is kind of uh, taken forward in our country can be a part of that agenda, can be a part of that movement. Mm. Uh, so moving beyond the NGO level and uh, creating ourselves into a grassroots movement sure. um, that is very inclusive, and by doing that, try to be an example or be uh, the change that we want to see ourselves. Um, but I think on the whole, in terms of the national level, it would be really, really uh, interesting to see if the government can allow for the transition that we would like to see take mm. place. That is moving away or moving beyond changes in policies and law into actually implementing sure. what we've agreed in terms of the different reforms that we have already crafted. Sure. Uh, for example, we should not be having a conversation 10 years from now about the fact that um, the 30% of the timber revenue that was supposed to be delivered to communities since 2008, mm. and none of which have been delivered to date, we should not be having mm. that conversation five years from now. The 30% of their share of the timber revenue should be delivered, sure. um, and we should not have to ask for that. Um, in terms of... Um, respecting people's right to say yes or to say no to particular development projects, we should not have to have a conversation. We should not have to fight for that. Mm. We should be in a position where it becomes the rule of the game rather than the exception. And so I think if we can move beyond uh, crafting more and more laws and changes in policy to actually begin implementing all of those progressive provisions that we now have, that would have made a big difference for our country. Sure, and I think, and I think you've you've articulated it well. I'm sure it's it's a perennial problem not only for Liberia but possibly on the continent as a whole. It is uh, something that I think uh, across the continent, um, especially in West Africa. Hmm. Um, sometimes I feel very very ashamed when I have to associate myself with countries like Equatorial Guinea, hmm. with Nigeria, with Guinea Conakry, um, all of these countries, Sierra Leone. The level of bad governance is just really, really disappointing. Mm. And I think our governments need to move beyond uh, the rhetoric that we see in terms of the changes in law and policies to actually implementing uh, these progressive uh, changes that citizens are advocating for in all of these countries. And across the entire region, citizens are asking and demanding the same thing. They want a voice. They want more benefits. They want much more accountability. Absolutely. Great. Thank you, Silas, so much for sharing your expertise on governance in Africa. This program is part of the Governance for Development in Africa initiative, funded by the Mo Ibrahim Foundation in collaboration with the Center of African Studies at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. To listen to this program again or to listen to other programs in the series, please visit the website www.governanceinafrica.org. For more information on this initiative, email cas at soas.ac.uk. That's cas at soas.ac.uk. Don't get a 
Fao